So, Father, we bless you in this place today, and we pray that what we just sang about uh, isn't just some cool, catchy song uh, over a great uh, rearrangement, but it's actually, Lord God, a truth that just, that just walks all over our lives, Father, that we will not be victims but victors. We are more than conquerors, the Scripture says, not by our own performance or our own attempts at morality, we are more than conquerors because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now, Father, would you speak to us through your word? Would you encourage us? Would you just challenge us? Uh, would you, Holy Spirit, uh, would you just take this timeless truth, put shoe leather on it, show us how we can walk in it, and use me as your servant. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Can we give the Lord a hand clap of praise? Just, it's always a joy to worship God, and worship is not about us, it's not about the style, but it's also good to have fun with it too. So thank you for keeping it fresh and fun. Absolutely love that. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in Psalm 127. Psalm 127. I figure since this is a family camp, we need to talk about the family. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit and what the gospel does uh, inside of a family. Psalm 127, uh, this is from the pen of Solomon. He writes these words, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, make note of this verse, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Underline this phrase, we're going to hang out here for a few moments this morning, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Husbands, would you just look to your wife and ask them, is our quiver full, sweetheart? (laughs) (laughs) He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in in the gate. Um, I... uh, I just spoke at this place, this great place in, uh, in North Carolina. It's the Billy Graham Training Center. It's called The Cove. Anybody here ever been to The, been to the Cove? Just a great place. And uh, what was especially meaningful to me this year was, uh, was my dad and I got to speak together at it. And that's always fun. And um, we, we always, this is our second time doing it there. Whenever, whenever we're in that part of the country, either individually or together, it's always a... Um, um, I'll just use the word again, a very sobering moment for us because we're one of those rare African-American families that can actually trace our lineage back to pre-emancipation proclamation day. So if you know anything about that ugly chapter of slavery in our country, you know they didn't keep good records on slaves. So the fact that we can trace our lineage back to pre-emancipation proclamation days is is beyond phenomenal. Uh, it goes all the way back for us. We can go as far back as um, my great-great-grandfather. His name was Peter. 
Um, last name, it's pronounced Loritz. It's a German name. We were owned by a family of German Reformed pastors. In fact, recently we, we tracked the, the descendants of the family that owned us down. We were so excited. and We just got them on the phone. Said, Y'all used to own us. We'd like to take you out to lunch. And um, oh, whoa, whoa. Uh, that came out wrong. Um, so... Um, um, but but, but just, just get the irony, the family that, that owned us actually led my great-great-grandfather to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and, you know, I don't quite know what to do with that. We rejoice in salvation, but the duplicitness of that, that you can own someone and yet lead them to faith in Jesus Christ... Um, Unreal. So that began something in our family. Uh, my great great grandfather was illiterate; couldn't um, couldn't read, couldn't couldn't write. Uh, but according to family tradition, he'd sit there in the old um, rocking chair of the homestead because when when the 13th Amendment was ratified, the family that owned us gave us 300 acres of land free and clear in Catawba County, North Carolina. Uh, in fact, many of my relatives still live on parcels of that land. So my great-great-grandfather, newfound emancipation, he's married, uh, builds the home, um, and according to family tradition, he'd memorized much of the New Testament by having his kids read to him over and over because he couldn't read, but, but he was so, he, he, he wouldn't allow that to be a barrier to his relationship with Christ that he couldn't read. He was so hungry for the word, he'd have his kids read to him over and over again from the same section of scripture, and that served as a two-edged sword. It not only got the word into him, it got the word into them, and all of his kids became followers of Jesus Christ. He and his wife were married for over 50 years, never divorced. Uh, In fact, recently, my father and I uh, walked to what we believe is he and his wife's unmarked grave there, um, not too far from the old family homestead. One of his sons, my great-grandfather, Milton uh, Loritz. In fact, if you were to come to my home, uh, I saw this as a kid growing up. Milton uh, penned a document, so I have a document written in my great-grandfather's hand back in the late 1800s, just outlining the family lineage. Um, and every time I'd walk by it, well, I shouldn't say every time, a lot of times I'd walk by it and I'd look at it, there would just be this pervasive feeling of, man, the home matters. So here he is growing up in Jim Crow. He's got 14 kids, busy man. Uh, All of his kids come to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, When his father died, he took his part of the inheritance and um, actually donated a part of the land to the Thomas Road AME Chapel, a little church there he helped to to start. Uh, It's still going on today, no offense. Uh, Mount Hermon, my favorite place to preach is that little chapel that can seat no more than 75 people that my great-grandfather helped to donate land towards. Christ was preeminent in his home. Again, all 14 of his kids came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He and his wife were married for over 50 years. His youngest son, my grandfather, Crawford Willow Loritz Sr., um, played in the Negro Leagues, phenomenal professional baseball player. Unfortunately, he had too much melanin in his skin, so he couldn't play in the major leagues. Um, he, uh, in the offseason, would work in the coal mines of Kentucky to put food on his family's table. One offseason, a blast goes off, knocks out one of his eyes, end of his playing career. In fact, the coolest thing my grandfather used to do growing up uh, when I was a kid, the coolest thing, uh, at the breakfast table, he'd put his fake eye in one jar and his teeth in the other. Um, coolest thing ever. Um, but him and my grandmother were married for over 53 years. 
Jesus Christ was preeminent in his home. Um, my dad, uh, godliest man I know, uh, him and mom just celebrated 48 years of marriage. Uh, dad never made a promise to me he didn't keep. Just an incredible man of integrity. And so what I want you to understand in my direct line, there's no such thing as a man who didn't love Jesus or a man who divorced his wife. So I want you to understand, yes, to whatever extent God uses me, all the credit goes to him and his sovereignty, but, but in my own life, I am cognizant of the fact that the home has been God's primary vehicle in shaping who I am today. Parenthesis. I know I just really devastated many of you because the temptation saying your legacy when they said Papa was a rolling stone, wherever he laid his hat was his home, and when he died, all he ever left you was alone. Yeah, only a few of us got that, okay? Um, <laughs> what key was that, Stephen? Not quite sure. You don't know. Um, but if you come from just fatherlessness and broken homes, my challenge to you this morning is why don't you start a legacy? Refuse to be defined. See, your past may explain you, but it does not excuse you. You can rise above it. Your home matters. I want to talk to parents, I want to talk to grandparents. Um, grandparents, um, even Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher, talks about the role of his grandfather in his own spiritual development. Uh, and I know grandparents, you know, when, so when I was growing up, we called my mom a law and my dad Grace. Mom was law. I mean, she, she would get down with you anywhere. Like, um, okay, let me explain that. Uh, she carried a little uh, switch in her purse. Switches, anybody know what a switch is? Um, uh, edit that out. I'm in California. Um, and, you know, and there are little branches that would wrap around your little legs, and she'd kind of swatch you with that. And, uh, man, we got it in grocery stores. We got it in church. We got it in bathrooms and restaurants. We just got it. But then, but then grandkids come along, and I don't even know who she is. I don't even know who she is. Like, I remember they had just moved into a new house. My kids were real little. And I remember begging my mother, to, you got to discipline our kids. We're leaving with you for 10 days. Uh, they got sin natures. They're going to do something. Oh, no, those precious little ones. I, I don't know who she is. <laughs> well, we're picking them back up, getting them ready to detox them after 10 days with their grandparents, right? And we're picking them up. I said, how'd it go? She goes, well... You know, Miles kind of uh, drew on my wall. I'm like, oh, this is good. So what'd you do? Brand new house. My kid takes crayons, draws on the wall. What is, what is his dear sweet grandmother who we called Law? What did she do? She goes to Target, gets a frame, and puts it over the artwork. Grandparents, I just want to encourage you, don't just spoil. You have an opportunity to invest. And Psalm 127 teaches us what that looks like. 
Psalm 127 is right smack dab in the middle of a section of songs, uh, psalms called the Songs or Psalms of Ascent. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, uh, you know that Jerusalem sits on a hill. So no matter where you are coming from, north, south, east, or west, you always have to go up when it comes to Jerusalem. Several times out of the year, the people of God would go up to Jerusalem to worship on high and holy days, and as they went, they had a couple of songs on their spiritual iTunes playlist. They're called the Songs of Ascents. They never went to Jerusalem quiet. They didn't wait for a band to cue them. Before they got into the house of God, they were already singing and worshiping. And one of the songs that they were singing was Psalm 127. So that God, watch it now, this psalm that focuses on the centrality of God in all spheres of life, but especially the home. God says, one of the things I want my people to sing about to constantly have playing over and over and over again is the importance of the God-centered, Christocentric home. It is an inescapable truth that our homes matter. That our psalm is concerned with the centrality of God over all things is clear. I mean, right out the gate, he comes out in Psalm 127, verse 1, talking about the centrality of God over the home when he says, unless the Lord builds the house. And then watch it, he moves from the home to the city. I'll talk some about this in just a few moments. Unless the Lord watches over the city. So I want you to see here, I'll come back and clean it up a little bit later. There is a connection that the psalmist makes between your home and the city. It is as if he's saying, if you want better cities, it's about better homes. He moves from the centrality of God over the home, the centrality of God over the city, now to the centrality of God over work in verse 2. Then in verse 3, he doubles back to the home and not only talks about the centrality of God over the home, but specifically with children in view. He says in verse 3, look at it with me. Behold, children are a heritage, underline that word, a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. He's writing in Hebrew, and the idea of the Hebrew word heritage simply means an inheritance. Children are an inheritance from the Lord. Unbelievable. I think there's two ideas here. Number one, when we think of an inheritance, it is typically something we get excited over. It is something that elicits and provokes great joy. He says, children, God has bequeathed to us children. Parenthesis. Probably the strongest thing I've ever said to my church, and I actually got it from, from Rick Warren. I, I couldn't believe he said it at Saddleback. Um, and I understand, maybe some of you are here and you're dealing with issues in, of infertility and it's hard. That's, that's incredibly hard. And... Um, and, and I, I pray that you find the Holy Spirit to be a great comfort. Uh, in every church, there's people who battle infertility, or there's, there's couples who, who, who just, for whatever reason, um, kids aren't a part of the long-term plan. 
here's what I just want to encourage people. If I understand Psalm 127 right, that children are a heritage, an inheritance, a gift from the Lord, then I think every home needs to contemplate deeply how to have children to be a part of that home, either biologically, through adoption, through foster care, through mentoring. They're a heritage from the Lord. I think by way of application, I think, I think one of the things that Corey and I have always wrestled with, if they are a heritage from the Lord and they should uh, uh, elicit excitement from us, then, then I think uh, when my kids turn 30 years of age, Quentin, Miles, and Jaden, and they are reflecting back during their time with us in our house, because at 30 they won't be in our house, but during their time with us in our house... I think they should, if, if they were to be asked the question, close your eyes, reflect on your childhood, what expression do you see on your mom and dad's face? I should hope without even thinking about it, they should think joy and excitement. Not a frown. Not a scowl. You are a joy and a delight. Corey and I have always tried to parent from the default of the natural answer, the default answer is going to be yes, unless you give me a really good reason as to why not. Now, that was different than how I got parenting. Uh, I, I used to say, can, can I? No. Well, you didn't even know what I was going to say. But I, I think parenting, we, we're looking at this and we should say, they're heritage. There's a sense of excitement. I think there's another idea behind heritage. Proverbs 13.22, I think every adult should be able to quote this to their, to their parents without even thinking about it. Every time I'm with my dad, I always quote Proverbs 13.22. It simply says this, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. <laughs> and I always say to my dad, are you a good man? Are you a good man? <laughs> Parenthetically, I think Proverbs 13.22 is teaching that a good righteous man, a good righteous dad and mom they are thinking as it relates to the stewardship of their material possessions third generationally. Leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Think about that. God says, if you steward my resources well and you leave something that ripples on to your grandkids, I call that good. See, some of you have been taught that money is the root of all evil. No, the love of money is the root of all evil. So God says, what do I say about the dad, the mom, who think third generationally as it relates to financial provision? I say, good. One of the saddest things I ever do as a pastor is to bury someone who didn't even leave life insurance to pay for the funeral. What will God say to that? Poor stewardship. My role is to provide even beyond the grave. But what is an inheritance? Many of us are doing this here. We're investing. We're saving money. We are uh, trying to pay off a house. We're setting things aside for our kids, our grandkids. Watch it now. An inheritance is something we set aside for a time we will not see. Notice how the psalmist flips the script. 
When the psalmist says children are a heritage, the psalmist is saying the most precious asset you have in your financial portfolio are your kids. Parented right, your kids become the fingerprints you leave on the world for a time you will not see. They matter. Steward, well, your home matters. Well, how do we steward well? Four things. And they all come from the imagery here in verse 4. I had you underline it. He says, children, watch it now, are like arrows, not boomerangs. No, no, I'm serious. I just want to park here for a minute. Children are like arrows. They're meant to be launched out and released, never to permanently return. Sociologists tell us we are in an age of extended adolescence. Sociologists define adolescence this way. If you get nothing else I say, get this. They say adolescence is simply wanting the privileges of adulthood without the responsibilities. Adolescence is wanting the privileges of adulthood without the responsibilities. Because of that, adolescence is not so much an age as it is a mindset. It's a mindset of entitlement. Several years ago, they did a study. They surveyed a group of Chinese parents, and they said to these Chinese parents, give us one word that describes your hope for your kids. The predominant word these Chinese parents used was, our hope is we want our kids to be successful. They then surveyed a group of American parents. They said, give us one word that describes your hope for your kids. American parents said, happy. Happy happy. I'm here to tell you that this happiness ethic is killing resiliency in our kids. It's killing them. Uh, I read a lot of biographies, and biographies pretty much follow the same kind of arc. Uh, it deals with great people who come from nothing, struggle, 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 finally make it big, and enjoy a great life. Well, why don't we ever read biographies on their kids? I think it's because they come from nothing, their parents do, struggle, 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 make it big, and the first thing the parents say is, my kids will never have to struggle the way that I struggle because I want them to be happy, not realizing in the process you're handicapping them from the very thing that made you great, which is his struggle. So when I graduated from college, man, uh, excuse me, from high school, packed house, man, just packed house. I mean, this is in the day, the early 90s, we had the aerodynamic haircuts, and uh, um, man, we, we music was blaring, we were having a fun time, and uh, my mom taps me on the shoulder, says, your dad wants to uh, talk to you. I'm like, really, right now? I'm in the middle of electric sliding, and yeah, your dad wants to talk to you, man. So we go, I go outside, we had this brick patio, and my dad, you know, has a set of uh, china in his hands, and he's crying. I'm like, this is a weird sight. Why do you have a set of china in your hand? And he's crying, and crying, and so proud of you. He says, man, major moment in your life. And in the middle of saying all this, he takes the china and smashes it on the brick patio. It just shatters into pieces. I'm like, dad, what in the world? Why'd you do that? He goes, son, do you know what that was? I said, no, sir. He goes, that was your place setting. (laughs) 
He said, you're going to college or military, but chilling around my house with no plan, eating up my food, watching TV all day long with your highest aspiration being ranked in the top 100 of some video game, not an option. Praying for you. God bless you. <laughs> I'm telling you, that lit a fire under me. It lit a fire. Now, parenthetically, my sisters did not get the same deal. No, I'm not bitter about that at all. <laughs> I remember the end of my first semester in college. Dad comes to me and says, you know, the Lord's blessed us. We could, I could totally pay for all your college. As a man, though, I don't think that's good for you, so I'm going to ask you to come up with 25% of your tuition. I don't care how you do it, sell drugs, whatever it is you need to do. <laughs> I want my 25%. I'm ticked off. I mean, you didn't have to tell me you could afford to pay for all of it. I mean, lie to me. Tell me you can't afford it, whatever. But here I am working multiple jobs, burning the midnight oil. And you know what? What's interesting? I made some of the best grades I ever made in my life because I kind of now took college a little bit more seriously. When I graduated from college, standing out on the lawn, I crack a joke. And my cap and gown says, Dad, I'm going to grad school. I'm hoping the bank of Crawford and Karen Loritz is open. He says, funny you should say that. College was me, you, and Jesus. Grad school is you and Jesus praying for you. <laughs> Man, I struggle. I'm eating top ramen noodles, Vienna sausages, struggling to get through grad school. I finally graduated near the top of my class. On my graduation day from grad school, dad looks at me eye to eye and he's crying. He says, I respect you. I've planted churches across this country. I've left established churches to sit in living rooms with 26 people, believing on God. How does all this happen? I didn't have helicopter parents who pitched a fit because their four-year-old didn't get a participation trophy. I just want to say something to you in love. Sociologists tell us that this happiness ethic especially flourishes among middle to upper middle class parents. And it's killing us. As a pastor, I hear it all the time. Strong, godly women. Just going, where are the strong, godly men? Oh, they're sitting on their mom's sofa. And their tidy whities Blogging and pontificating on the problems of the world while they have no job. Children are like arrows, not boomerangs. What does this imagery convey? Four things. An arrow is useless unless someone picks it up, unless it's held, unless that thing is, is pulled back. Arrows by themselves won't reach their destination. They need someone to pick it up. This is the first thing. How do I steward well? Relationship. Relationship. Henry Brooks went fishing with his father, Charles Brooks. At the end of that day, they both separately journaled and reflected on the day. Charles Brooks, the father, said, spent all day fishing with my son, caught nothing. Henry Brooks had a different take. Spent all day fishing with my dad, the most glorious day of my life. 
relationship. If you were to ask me again, Brian, you know, you've accomplished a few things in, in, in your life. By no means am I lifting myself up at some paradigm to follow whatever, but I've accomplished a few things in my life. Brian, just tell me how did that happen? I'll tell you, a major part of it is me and Dr. Crawford Loritz, my dad, logged hundreds, if not thousands of hours on, on the bank of some Georgia river fishing. And most of that time, he was untangling my, my line. We logged Hundreds of hours, bawling our eyes out again over the Atlanta Braves. My dad took me on trips together as he would preach places. I remember before we'd leave the hotel room, we'd get on our knees together, hearing him pray. There's relationship. Listen, you may be divorced. That doesn't give you an excuse to punt on your responsibilities to have a relationship with your kids. Secondly, not only is there a relationship, there's intentionality. Arrows, you pull them back and you let them go and they move swiftly. They fly. Such it is with kids. We get a small window, and they're gone. Someone once said, parenting, oh, yeah, it's when the days are long and the years are short. Swift. In the game of basketball, when that, when that player crosses half court, one of the first things they'll do is they'll, they'll look to a small box that has what's called a shot clock. Shot clock says pretty much you have a small window of time to to execute the play and get the shot up. If you don't, it's a turnover. Make the most of that small window of time. Parents, we have a shot clock. Be intentional. I was telling somebody the other day, my, um, my dad, uh, so my, my boys are 18, 16, 14, and I'm just so blessed with a, with a dad, their granddad, who is not just about spoiling them, although he does that, he's also thinking intentionally. So I'll never forget when my oldest turned 11, my dad says, hey, what are you thinking of doing? They turned 13. I said, we're going to do a rites of passage. He says, okay, great, because I just bought a Bible. My oldest was 11. I want to give it to him two years later when they turned 13. With each of our boys, when they turn 11, he buys a Bible, and for two years, that's where he has his personal devotions, but he writes their names in the margin of the Bible and prayers that he prays for them. It's what he preaches out of. So certain texts, they see Papa's outlines for the Bible studies he's done and where he preaches. At the front of it, in that blank page, there's the family legacy. It goes all the way back to Peter. And, and then, finally, two years later, we hang out. We have great times. We're eating. We're celebrating. We've talked about sex and all this wonderful stuff. And then they get handed the Bible. And you see them just kind of flipping through the pages and just the sense of confidence that's growing in them because Papa has invested intentionally in them. May it never be said of us parents that we were more intentional with their homework or their athletics than their growth in Christ. 
I would commend all of us to read the book, The TechWise Family. Because I, I'm just seeing it in so many families. I'm in the bunker with you. How just kind of not having a game plan when it comes to technology. And I'm not even talking about what they watch. I'm talking about the amount of time. And we've just all seen it. Families together on screens. Just want, where's the intentionality here? See, this kind of stuff takes leadership. And leadership at times means... You may not like me. But we're going to go dark. Five to eight in the Loritz household, we go dark. Technology goes up. We're sitting around the dinner table. <laughs> and I got boys, right? So it's even more of a problem with them. I, I, I want you to learn, I tell my boys, talk in paragraphs. <laughs> so we, we, we put a timer on. You got two minutes. You get tell me about your day. Two minutes intentionality. We're sitting together. We're learning games together. My boys are part black, so they got to learn to play spades. It's just, it's just what you have to do. You, you have to learn to play spades. Chess, things like that. But you got to be intentional. Third, stewarding well, relationship. Secondly, intentionality. But thirdly is the principle of distance distance. In ancient warfare, arrows were one of the few weapons that were intentionally made to shoot from a distance and to be launched out again to a time and place that warrior may not personally go to themselves. You aimed at something way off in the distance and you launched it out. So it is with children. We launch them to a place we cannot see. That's why he says, he goes on to say in our text, Behold, children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, the children of one's youth. And then here it is, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. We understand this, but in antiquity, the cities were small. The average city was small, so you didn't have the privilege of, of kind of having this separate arm called an army. No, no. the long-term health and vibrancy of the city demanded that especially if you were a son, you were automatically a part of the, the rising army. And so I had to raise resilient children. If I wanted my city to last for years to come, those kids would rise up and meet the enemy at the gate. So if I wanted my city to flourish, my home had to flourish. The home matters. Several years ago, my wife and I were in London and um, we stumbled across Churchill's War Room. Anybody ever been to Churchill's War Room? And we're, we're touring there. And I had two thoughts, two thoughts. This is where Churchill kind of holed up during World War II. I had two thoughts just serving Churchill's War Room. Number one, how small it was. Quarters were pretty tight, nothing elaborate or fancy here. It, it, aesthetically, it looked insignificant. But my second thought was, it's from this aesthetically insignificant-looking place that the decisions made in this small place literally changed and shaped the trajectory of the world. Your home matters. 
It may be a small little house, fixer-upper, apartment, whatever it may be, but the decisions made in that little place changes and shapes and impacts the world. How do I steward well? Relationship. Intentionality. Distance. I have a long view here. Fourthly and finally, I've got to have an enduring purpose. Like arrows. The warrior has a purpose when he picks up that arrow. Picks it and draws it in his bow fixes his gaze on a target and lets that thing fly. Parents, what is your vision for your kids? What are you aiming for? What are you releasing them towards? What's your vision? Your kids need to know why. I mean, I've got boys. If I had girls, it, was, it, it would be different. But, but I'm telling each of my boys, so Quentin, you're getting a job. Here's why. Work ethic matters. I want you to be a great provider one day. I'm not saying your wife can't work. But here's why I want you to get a job right now. Work ethic matters. What's your why? If you don't have a strategy for your kids, I can tell you now, the enemy does. He's clear on what he wants to do with your family. So if he's clear and you're not, guess who's going to win? Satan's strategy, the Bible says he goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't just want to wound your family. He doesn't want to just maim your family. He wants to take your family out. And like any good strategist, he wants to begin by dividing mom and dad. If he can divide the leadership, he'll kill your home. If he can't do that, he'll settle for passive dads. In his book, Point Man, Steve Farrar writes, if a man is passive and indifferent to the things of God and the spiritual leadership of his home, then attack is not necessary. He is already neutralized. You're passive. He's already got you. Many of us have heard of the story of the Kruger National State Park. It's a fascinating story. I'd encourage you to watch the video online. Several years ago at the Kruger National State Park, they were having a problem with overcrowding by elephants. So what they decided to do was they decided to transport some of the elephants out by helicopter to a neighboring park. But because they were going to do this by helicopter, they could they could only really do that with the lesser weighing elephants, which were the female elephants and the young elephants. So get the picture. Overcrowding with elephants, we've got a problem. Kruger National State Park says, let's get rid of the kids and the moms and let's separate them from the dads. Watch the video. So they 
airlift these new elephants, these elephants to the, to the neighboring park. And what happens when they land there? Not long. These juvenile elephants go buck wild. They form marauding van, uh, bands. They start killing other animals. Even the zoologists are like, we've never seen this behavior before. We've got to do something to change this. So what do they do? Watch the video. They said, let's try getting the male elephants back on the premises. They figured out a way to get the male elephants back on the premises. And these male elephants show up, and they survey the scene among their kids, and they let out a sound, which I'm guessing an elephant speak is, knock it off. (laughs) These young elephants immediately stop. Behavior has changed because leadership assumed its rightful place. Women, I'm not not here to take us back to the 1950s or so, whatever that may mean. We praise God. You are a vital part of what happens. But please notice this text is really written to men like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Men, we need you to show up. Step out of passivity and lead. Let me just throw this in there before I go to pray. I think one of the problems that we're seeing among adults who have very little respect for authority is it because it began in homes where passive dads watched their kids, especially their sons, talk to their moms any old kind of way. My kids will tell you, I don't have too many buttons, but I got two. Number one, if you lie to me, make it your best. (laughs) Get an Academy Award. Sell out. But two, don't disrespect not your mom, but my wife. We need men who'll show up. Who'll be that mighty warrior. Pick up those arrows. Aim them specifically towards something. Refuse to be a helicopter parent and launch them into a time they will not see. So, Father, we bless you. Children are a heritage from you. What a gift. I pray that they would feel that from us, that you're a delight, that we're, we're excited about you. That our default posture towards our kids will be, yes, and how can we support you and go for it? But may we also be highly relational, intentional. We have the long view in mind as we, we know we're launching them out for a time we will not see. And may there be a set vision, an enduring purpose, something we're aiming them towards. But even now, I'm reminded, Lord God, we can do all of these things, and yet the reality is we can't, in our own strength, manufacture godly kids. We can't do that. So I'm reminded of what my dad says. We parents tend to take too much credit when our kids turn out right and too much blame when they don't. So we need you, God, to do what we can't do. Get to their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.